Cell is the leading distributor of radiotherapy patient positioning equipment and physics QA products for the UK and Ireland, supplying both the NHS and private sectors. We currently have a busy event schedule and will be attending many conferences in the next few months and many of the regional study days. For a full list of where to meet us, please do get in touch. As well as our event schedule, we also have a busy product portfolio that has recently been updated to. This includes Sky Factory for state-of-the-art visual LED lighting. We have MyQA Ion and Ion RT from IBA for automated patient-specific QA for photon, electron and proton radiotherapy. And we also have MR Box from our AI suppliers at Therapanacea, allowing AI-powered MR-only workflows for a more consistent and high-quality planning pathway. For SGRT, we have a vast range of open-faced thermoplastic masks, as well as surface-guided compatible clear bolus from ClearSight, preventing any risk of interference between the skin surface and your SGRT solution. And as always, do not hesitate to get in touch to discuss your product and service requirements with our friendly and knowledgeable team. Our account and clinical specialists are from a radiotherapy and physics background, and we are more than happy to chat about the clinical benefits and the workflow of all of our products. Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiotherapy oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 101. My name is Norman Chalker Anderson and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Lizzie Streeter, uh, who discussed her role as the National LGBT Health Programme Manager for NHS England. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So we're very pleased to introduce our guest today, John Archer, who will be discussing his career, proton therapy and managing the proton beam service at the Christie. Manchester. Hi John, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for inviting me along today. Well John, why don't you start by telling us um, a bit about your role and how you got there? Yeah, okay. So let, let, let's get the other black mark out of the way. I'm not a therapeutic radiographer. Um, I am in fact a, physis- a physicist at heart. Um, yeah, I kind of um, ended up doing physics at uni, maybe because I really hadn't thought about what I wanted to do in life. And um, and maybe that's what I was better at at school. <laughs> um, I had a little bumpy ride at university, getting involved maybe some of the wrong crowd, and um, then somewhere along the way, ended up doing a, a summer job, uh, shining lasers at, at brains, and um, yeah, basically from there, did a PhD in diagnostic stuff, um, looking at um, Alzheimer's, Huntington's disease, and Lewy body dementia, and trying to differentiate kind of some of the biochemical differences between different brain tissue, you know, looking 30 years up the road at how we can perhaps diagnose those different types of dementia. Um, unfortunately for me, the charity that funded me went bust after the first year and um, I ended up um, moving in with another research group, the Biophotonics Research Group down at Gloucester Royal. Um, and they had a lot of people there doing oncology stuff. And um, um, if you've ever had your eyes tested at Boots or you know, anywhere else. They talk about optical coherence tomography now. I had a colleague that was doing that when it was all set out on a massive optical bench and um, he was trying to develop a probe so that when, you know, patients with esophageal cancer were having endomycosal resections, um, the patients didn't have to wait for the results from histology. We could have a look at, you know, the cell structure um, in situ and decide whether they was going to resect. And I gave him a hand one day when he went down to theatres and I came back to the office with the other PhD students and I was like, this is amazing. I've spent my whole like last few years in a dark lab with brains and lasers. He's in theatre and then someone said to me, he said, 
do you know you can be a medical physicist in the NHS? I was like, sorry? <laughs> said, yeah, there's a training scheme. And the deadline was the day after. Um, and then somehow by the, the, the back door, the day before uh, the Christie interviewed a few months later, they said, we've had someone drop out. Do you, do you want to come along for an interview? So I came along to the Christie. I thought, you know, this is great. I'm, I'm getting on the training scheme now. I'm, I've done diagnostic stuff for the last few years. I'm going to start curing cancer in radiotherapy. This is sexy as hell. Um, I'll be honest, I was up at, um, in PET CT on one of my placements and um, this gentleman walked in full of the joys of spring, newspaper under his arm, having loads of banter with with all the radiographers. Um, I read his notes back and forth to the GP multiple times over over multiple years. And as his PET CT scan came up, um, the poor chap had really advanced cancer. And like the way he walked in, you never saw that coming. And that kind of really hit home with me and, and like the like importance placed on diagnosis. And I think the reason I kind of say that is that each step of what's happened along my career, it's been informed by like patient-centered values, which I've inherited from my mum, who's a nurse over in Wigan. And and that's the, the way it went. I kind of went into becoming an imaging physicist, so not even a radiotherapy physicist. And, um, and recently, for clinical scientists, they've in- introduced a scheme for how you progress to become a, a consultant scientist. And because I've done a PhD in the past, me and my manager at the time were looking at options for um, kind of increasing my leadership skills and management skills so that I might get onto that register through equivalence. So I ended up doing a leadership program at the Leadership Academy and um, I went into this room one day surrounded by a crowd of operational managers and everyone was asked to introduce themselves. I'm sure it wasn't like this and I've met a lot of good operational managers since, but it felt like everybody in that room introduced themselves the same way. Hello, my name's Joe Bloggs. I've got a budget of so many million pounds and I want to be a chief executive. (laughs) And I like, I walked away and I was like, is this what operational management's like in the NHS? Like not one of them said the word patient. I was, I was fuming. Um, anyway, one thing led to another and I came to a crossroads. Um, do I carry on in physics or do I try my hand at doing operational management in a way that, that I feel it should be done. And, you know, a lot of really good people, um, Hazel Pennington, Ed Smith, Tom Edwards, and the rest of the team had been spending years working on the Proton Beam project in Manchester. And the opportunity came to come and work in a team where it's a bit of a soft landing from an ops perspective, you know, legislatively, I knew my stuff. But you were getting to work not just with therapeutic radiographers and diagnostic radiographers, clinical oncologists and physicists, but teachers and social workers and, you know, and advanced uh, like paediatric teams, so ODPs and and, and anaesthetists and stuff like that. Like, this is mega. And um, yeah, that's how I ended up in operational management, really. So that's a a long drawn out potted history. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. And just to clear something up, you definitely don't get a black mark against your name because you're a <laughs> physicist. We we need got we need more physicists. We need more dosimetrists. We need a whole multidisciplinary team. So I wouldn't. I would never say that that's a black mark against your name. <laughs> Thank you. That's. I mean. I mean. Everyone here has been really lovely and accommodating. I was at the radiotherapy service managers meeting in Cheltenham, and I dropped that bomb for the first time. And and you know what? We we had a 
quite a long chat about it over a few beers, but everyone's <laughs> been really, really kind of warm and, and welcoming. So, you know, it's great. Did you find that it was difficult with your background career to move into that? Did you feel like an imposter? Or did, or did you kind of go, well, operationally, I'm a manager. And so actually, do you need that knowledge? I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see what your perception is. <laughs> There, there's a few different questions there and a few different answers I can give but did I feel like an imposter yeah 100% like even before I stepped foot back in the Christie you know <laughs> yeah I, I was just, like people talk about um how big it is I, I don't like talking about it being the biggest radiotherapy department in Europe it's about what we do right it's not about the size of it but but people do talk about it in in that context and you know there's a lot of aspirational figures that were still working here that that were working here when i was a trainee so that in itself is quite intimidating but you know even um i was on holiday joe um in, in greece one year into being here and i i was seriously contemplating walking away you know do i go back to physics do i just do something completely different and a lot of that came from from my imposter syndrome and i was discussing it with my mentor at the time and I, I'd never considered it as imposter syndrome because that's what other people suffer from. And I'm not going to say right now that I'm completely cured of imposter syndrome because that's probably impossible. But when my when my mentor asked me, he said, do you think you were imposter syndrome like a cloak? At first it's like, oh, no, no. And then you think about it and you reflect on it. And, and I, I did. And I think you need to find a certain level of, 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 of empowerment and, and resilience. And for me personally, that came from two things trying to make when it comes to making difficult decisions trying to make them with the bit patient's best interests at heart um and that's that's my guiding light and and staff as well you know but it'll always be the patients by a nose do you know what i mean and, and putting patients first but then the other one which is super important as well is simply not being afraid to get it wrong and, you know, kind of that feeling walking down into into kind of um, our lead radiographer's office downstairs and saying, listen, when I made that decision, it was a lot of rubbish. I got it wrong. How can we change and improve? And how, how do we learn from it? That gives you so much strength. And, um, you know, I, I kind of obviously ultimately operationally take a lot of responsibility. So, you know, I can empower them to do the same and let balls drop if necessary. So that, that works for me. John, where does your passion for patients come from? Because generally, as a physicist, you don't normally introduce to that patient care until maybe you've qualified or even postgraduate level. Mm. It, it, it was definitely different as an imaging physicist, though. I'd say that, you know, especially working in nuclear medicine, um, for quite a bit of my career, we would administer kind of um, IDM1, pre-1 thyroid ablations on the ward for patients that that have got thyroid carcinoma, similarly making orange juice for those with thyroid toxicosis laced with iodine. So there was a lot of that um, as a physicist in in, in imaging. Um, but yeah, definitely a lot of it comes from my upbringing. Um, first, I mentioned my mum, who's a nurse. Um, you know, my dad, he, he used to work, you know, down the pits. So he kind of, 
you know, I've got a very strong, I don't, I try not to get too political on social media or at work, to be honest. And I think sometimes people do feel like I'm a bit impotent when it comes to politics, but, but, you know, there is a very strong working class socialist, you know, upbringing that, that, that sits at the heart of me. And, and, you know, I am a strong believer in the NHS constitution and, you know, when a few months ago I read an article in the Times about, you know, charging patients to access primary care or fining them if they don't hit a primary care appointment. Like, look around you right now. What happens when you restrict access to primary care? That's that's evident based on what's happened over the last few years. So that that is what strikes terror into my heart. And as an operational manager, like, I'm not going to stop that happening if it's going to happen as, as an individual, but, but I can certainly do my bit. Um, we do take it for granted in this country, kind of what the NHS constitution means and, and, and what it delivers to us on a day-to-day basis. So, yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a number of different things, really. I just, I've always, I suppose I've always been kind of interested in helping people. Um, you know, growing up, the voluntary organisations, as you know, I was in and around as, as a child and, and a young adult. And, and nowadays I'm a, I'm a trustee for a charity that helps with children with cancer and families of children with cancer. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know what it is. It just feels like the right thing to do. <laughs> do you think your upbringing then shapes you as a compassionate leader? Yes, it, it has to shape. It has to shape your approach as a leader. Like, um, and I've, I've, I've actually done a lot of work on exactly that, um, reflecting on my upbringing um, over the last year because there's another programme I've done with the Leadership Academy now and, and um you know we've that you know kind of thinking about how we develop ourselves in that program has been based on where we are now and how we got there both professionally and personally you know and i can look at life events so my, my dad eventually died with a glioblastoma and um, there was certain things that went on with his diagnosis and his battles with with alcohol which meant that even me and my brother discriminated against him at points but the nhs didn't and, you know, you, you see a CT scan with a, a tennis ball sized glioblastoma on you. Like, oh, my gosh. No, he really is poorly. So, you know, you, you go through you go through things like that in your life and it really does shape the leader that you become in the future. Sorry to hear about your personal experience, but I can absolutely see how that changes you as a professional working within oncology services and. Um, I just want to touch on, you, you kind of mentioned imposter syndrome, and it is something that we hear a lot within leadership and management within radiotherapy and also oncology services and the wider NHS. How how do we get over that? Is there, is there any tips or tricks that you've learned specifically that you would offer others advice about? I suppose you could approach it from two points of view. One, yourself as an individual, right? So... A minute ago, I said that making decisions based on the patient's best interests and not being afraid, uh, not being afraid of failing, that they are two powerful answers for me. So, I think I would encourage everybody to get a coach, because ultimately everybody's answer will always be different, and you've got to find your own answers. So you you need that stimulus from someone to to help you reflect and help find it out you know find out what are the triggers of your imposter syndrome and what your coping mechanisms might be 
and we dress up coaching don't we as some fancy leadership term but you just need someone to ask you a few questions about the way that you're feeling and you know when you answer that question you might not find the answers in that moment but in the car on the way home or out for a run or whatever you know you get thinking about it and that that is way more powerful than we give it credit for but i suppose you can also look at it from the point of view of how others support people with their imposter syndrome so like i'm not just telling you today that they're my coping mechanisms um, because you've kind of asked me questions around what my coping mechanisms are i'm i'm telling you that today because people need to know that i struggle with imposter syndrome and i have coping mechanisms to help me find it so people people need to know that others are happy to empathize with your challenges on imposter syndrome that they're happy to let you to fail um and and, and things like that we've got to be compassionate as, as we said a minute ago and supportive in that way do you think then being in your position or even for maybe I don't know, junior, more junior people who aren't maybe in senior leadership or management, do you think it's important for them to learn how to fail properly? Or is it just about failure and learning from the mistakes? It's the it's the quote, isn't it, from Batman? Um, you know, what, you know, why do we fall over so we can learn how to pick ourselves up? I love that quote. Oh. That, that's exactly that right. Yeah. It's going to be the strap line. Uh, all hell, Chris Nolan. Yeah. Um, yeah we have to do with that don't we and like i think as managers we need to take a step back you know we can't micromanage people or or get caught up and be worried about the risks of it falling down we need to let people go and have a a damn good stab at it and you know if we've if if it does completely fall down then help them to learn and help them to pick up the pieces or or if if it's not quite as bad as that give them a steer and, and so that they can learn for the future but you know, we, we definitely need to do more of that, letting it go and letting people run with our ideas. And, you know, like I've got, you know, even I can say that to you right now, but there's all sorts of ideas whizzing around my head about radiotherapy here at the Christie at the moment. And I'm like, well, I've been in post almost a year now and I've not really delivered on them. And you know what? Part of that is because even me, you know, sometimes I'm unconsciously unwilling to let some of those go. And it's only in the last few weeks I've thought, come on, John. You know, if this was somebody else, you'd say, let it go and let other people lead on that and let them have a go of it. Do you know what I mean? And so, yeah, we do have to do more of that. John, what are you most proud of since you've become operational lead? What what do you kind of reflect on and go, do you know what? The, it, if, if I stop doing this role tomorrow, I'm most proud of. That's such a good question. I mean, like there's, there's individual little things. Um, I think I'm, but I think more than anything, maybe the more general thing is, I'm just proud of the fact. And when I say proud of it, I I don't feel like, you know, I've achieved this. I'm just proud of the fact that, that actually, you know, I could walk away tomorrow and the standard of care that that radiographer talked about in the meeting would still be provided every day, every fraction of every day. Um, I think that, the fact that that doesn't need me to help to support it as, you know, well, obviously it does in some ways, but it really doesn't. It doesn't require my hands-on involvement to maintain that level of care. I think that's the thing that we need to be proudest of. But then there are lots of little things that have happened, you know, over the time that really show that, that the guys that we've got working in radiotherapy and proton therapy just continue to to not only provide 
the best care when when a patient walks down that maze but but beyond that as well so like the guys at our Oldham Satellite Centre are just so involved with the local community it blows your mind constantly taking donations to the local food bank supporting you know supporting you know families that are faced with significant levels of deprivation at every opportunity buying Christmas presents for one particular patient who had a really young child last Christmas they, they all chipped in like it's it's stuff like that that comes up all the time that you just think is fantastic and and I know I've given the Oldham example but it it, it happens in, in in all our pockets and yeah I, I don't think there is it's easy to talk about the negatives and you know you can walk into any healthcare organization or any organization and it's easy to talk about the negatives what we don't talk about is the positives they don't get the airtime the positives that they do deserve compared to the negatives um we are guilty of that at the christie and we've talked about it a lot we need to do more of it um because and i'm sure like everywhere else we do a lot of good and so yeah i'm kind of proud of that just generally <laughs> again that's very refreshing to hear because i think anything you read you turn the news on there's always something negative about the nhs at the moment but yeah we are probably unsung heroes within the cancer pathway in a bunker we get some chocolates every now and then no one knows about us but we know without us we're the only people who do an oncology degree we're the only people who can legally deliver radiation you know we are a crucial element of that pathway for so many people going through a cancer journey you know well gosh yeah you know radiographers therapeutic and diagnostic are underrepresented there's no doubt about it you can see why that is you know but but it does need it does need to be improved but but it is also mind-blowing in terms of the role that they play in the cancer pathway right now it is so important that we support any industrial action that comes out of the sor's ballot in a few weeks really important like i'm i'm happy to take on that challenge and do what we can to, to main treatment maintain treatment of kind of you know those cat one patients or, or whatever it might look like um but at the same time like you can't argue that actually when the radio when when therapeutic radiographers do choose to go on strike the impact of that will be more challenging than either the nurses or the junior doctors you know we've we've covered that industrial action in both directions here but you know you're not going to have to physicists to go and treat a patient are you right so says it all Oh, well, thank you for going there. Um, we won't get too political, but it, it is definitely on every radiographer's mind and anyone working within oncology as to what kind of that, the outcome of that will be and the impact um, on service. Um, John, we kind of covered a little bit about kind of the positive aspects. Um, so one of the big challenges nationally at the moment is workforce. Um, so what is the Christie doing in terms of kind of maintaining the the radiotherapy workforce and that encompasses everyone, especially for you guys in proton therapy, it's even more complex. But I'm, I'm thinking also about maybe support workers and the role that they play, um, apprenticeships. I know there's so much now, you might, you'd probably need a separate episode to talk about it, but what's your priority as an operational lead? Um... I often see that debate on social media about what's more important, recruitment and retention. And I think 
if I spend too much time and energy trying to figure that one out, I'll probably waste time that I could be spending on both. Um, like ret retention is obviously important, and you can look at that on numerous different levels. Like, well, I mean, let, let's go there again with the industrial action. That you know, let's let's look let's look, you know, nationally, right? Let's look at the government right now. But you know, the whole dispute around the pay award is it's it's fair comment right you know if kids come in you know out of college or school think to themselves i can do a nine to five job um without doing for three or four years at university um at amazon then then why would i want to go into that environment where i don't get paid as much and where they're going to make me go above and beyond all the time like that's going to that that's going to cause a problem isn't it from a recruitment perspective so that has to be addressed Similarly, I do have reservations about other professionals moving off agenda for change as well. You know, um, you could argue that that, that is quite political. Um, but in 10 years time, our recruitment problems will probably end up being twice as bad because those people that have got similar values to us that want to help people will will see the pay scales and think, yeah, OK, I'll go and do that instead. So that's i think that's why i really do support the sor and and into if they do kind of go forward to, to 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 strike and things then i suppose it comes down to responsibilities on other levels as well and what can we do about it which is your question and, and there's a whole scale of things there i think like the most basic one is making sure people enjoy coming to work right you know that people we need to, we need people to enjoy working at the christie and that that goes you know that goes from everything to how we treat each other on a day-to-day -day basis because we can control that right that is completely within our grasp treating with each other with respect um and being helpful and nice to each other but then obviously it goes what can we do operationally and and you've got you've got a whole scale of, of people coming into the profession there from you know from the support workers from you know the the banf the banfires that come in post graduation all the way through to kind of our advanced and, con and consultant practitioners. So you, I think you need to have really clearly defined strategies at what the development pathway looks um, through therapeutic radiography. So, so you know, we do want to introduce apprentices at the Christie. I think we've been slow off the mark, but but we've been speaking to our colleagues at Lancashire who. who who, are, who share an ODM with and they've said nothing but positives about kind of the apprenticeship program so hopefully I think hopefully we'll be able to look at getting some started for March 24 which is is when 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 things kick off again in Sheffield for the next intake right so that's that's right up there on our agenda we've we've the challenge then comes to me operationally to say right how do we make that work financially so obviously these people need to be supernumerary there's no doubt about that um but with the kind of economic climate in the nhs right now going finding new money for these people is it's probably not as straightforward as enough as it should be um but there's things that we can do before then so if we're struggling with vacancies right now and we've got you know revenue sat there well why why don't we use that to get people on apprenticeships whilst pursuing the money that makes it truly supernumerary so we catch up when these radiographers are coming through but then from there it does it go it goes on doesn't it from you know enhanced practice what does that look like and there's a lot of work being led again by Sheffield and at the radiotherapy managers meeting we had a really healthy discussion about that and actually it was interesting to see two different opinions on what enhanced practice looked like 
um, and and certainly advanced practice and consultant practice. So, um, kind of we've got a great consultant radiographer at the Christie, Lucy Buckley, who who is so passionate about advanced practice. And you know, she came to me with an idea last week around setting up rapid access palliative clinics across all our four photon sites. And, and she's she's really passionate about it because of what it delivers for patients, but the opportunities it creates for therapeutic radiographers as well. So as an operational manager, I've got to find ways to support that and make that a reality, you know. And and that's her presenting the idea in its first kind of, and you know, in, in its first kind of guise, and and then me asking questions about it, and then stumbling on like nuggets where she said, yeah, and I think that'll reduce admissions at Withington. Wow. Lucy, we can build a business case on that. We don't need additional funding. So I take someone who is passionate about advanced practice, who's had years of experience as a therapeutic radiographer, who's got this great idea, and I bring my expertise as an operational manager in finance and support her to make that a reality. So that's, I mean, that's the way we work across radiotherapy. You know, I'm not a therapeutic radiographer, but I've got some amazing experts in the different aspects of what we do in radiotherapy. And it's my job to support them with their ambitions from that perspective. So instead of having one lead radiographer, I've got all different radiographers. So I've got like a rich source to tap into and I, I help them make their ambitions become a reality. So I think that covers it. We're, we're, there's all, all sorts of things we're looking at as well, a bit more kind of outside the box and, you know, progression posts. So putting competency frameworks so people can move from the first band post-graduation you know that you know beyond preceptorship into the next band and what that looks like and in some people's eyes that aligns with enhanced practice right um but also what can we do you know what have we got here at the christie which is unique to the christie and this is just about the christie but these which are retaining radiographers for everybody right for the future because they've got like 40 odd years to work but what can we do which keeps people you know keeps people here so do do we work with big radiotherapy centers on the other side of the world and offer kind of like exchange opportunities um um do do we look at how we use the diverse aspects of radiotherapy that we've got here you know and offer more rotational posts between protons and, and photons um and, and of course we have an mrl so that comes into the equation so there's lots of ideas going into into the melting pot. Some are really short term. Um, some, such as the apprenticeship, will deliver in the medium term when these people come out of the course. And, and some are long term. I think we have to go at it from all three of those points. Because in three years time, if if we've been a year later in you know sending people off to become apprentices, we'll be kicking ourselves, right? So I think we... We now have a trust um, strategy for, for AHPs. Um, in the not too distant future, we're going to have a new professional lead for therapeutic radiography, which we've not had for a short period of time. Um, but when that person comes into post, they, you know, with my support, we, we will lead on kind of what our strategy is around therapeutic radiography. And that will, at the heart of it, have these recruitment and retention issues. So we're very fortunate that this episode is also sponsored by Radformation. They provide artificial intelligence driven tools for efficiency and quality improvements in all phases of the patient care process, including for proton beam therapy centres. So Radformation can easily accelerate your treatment planning workflow with customizable automation solutions. Their latest solution, 
Rad Monte Carlo adds gold standard treatment verification for electron, photon and proton treatment systems to provide Monte Carlo calculations in two minutes. Rad Monte Carlo is US FDA cleared and is pending their CE mark. You can find out why over 1,400 centres worldwide trust Radformation automation solutions in their clinic by going on www.radformation.com or on Instagram at radformation underscore, Facebook at Radformation Software and LinkedIn and Twitter at Radformation. Make sure you check them out. John, as this episode is part of the leadership series, got a, a question which I think I've asked every manager that's come on so far. Yeah. Do you think leadership can be taught? Absolutely not. <laughs> I love the varying views. We've not had one consistent answer yet. <laughs> you just got to live it, right? I mean, you've got to live it. And also, it goes back to that, um, what I said about imposter syndrome before. You have to find your own answers. Like, leadership and management are two completely different things. Um not necessarily always mutually exclusive. I think some people, some people think they are mutually exclusive. They are two different concepts, but you know, in my role, I have to employ both at the same time. Um, it, it's interesting. I was talking to someone the other day about um, a couple of roles that we're recruiting for at the moment, which are quite, quite senior. And I think, I think this is the time. This is the first time since being involved with the, you know, the wider radiotherapy service that that we've gone out to recruitment for roles like this. And I was mentioning how, you know, this recruitment is going to be different to the past. You know, it's the management side, you know, that's way more easier to teach than the leadership side. Having the right person, like I'm not, well, I actually want people with diverse opinions. I really don't want people to think the same as me, but having kind of the right values and behaviors on display is way more important than someone that has kind of who can quote a budget at me for for example um that stuff is easier to, is so easy to teach and as we said before i'm happy to let people get it wrong as they learn what it is and and i bet you as well if you did a straw poll of um if you did a straw poll of managers in the nhs and ask them where they learned how to manage budgets or you know this that and the other about 90% of them would say, I just learned on the job. And that's because you can. And I suppose that's what you do with the leadership, but it's way easier to do it with the management. So, John, I'm going to ask you something from a female perspective. What do you think about kind of the gender pay gap and specifically within radiotherapy services? where we find that obviously 70% of the workforce is female and yet when you look at kind of senior management, males progress much quicker. Why is that? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Have you read um, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race? (laughs) Have you read that? Right. I haven't read that. I need to read it. Yeah, so have a read. I've read that. Yeah. Yeah, Like the first half of the book talks about British black history and I think... Yeah, maybe I'm doing it a bit of a disservice, but if you read that, I think you begin to glean your answers for why things like that are the case right now. Um, the the program I did at Leadership Academy in the last year was specifically focused on on kind of people developing people into executive level directors. 
And um, because of that, you know, when you get to that level, you have to self-manage your learning because you don't have line. Well, you don't have the same line management or, you know. So we had to basically develop ourselves however we saw fit, which is, you know, when before when I talked about the reflection, I developed my own learning contract from that reflection. Um, and I think I was sat in. Um, have you heard Eden Charles speak before? If, if you've not, look him up on Twitter. He's a fantastic bloke. Um, he was talking about diversity and, and and he said something similar to what you said, Joe, like, you know, the vast majority of exec boards in the NHS are straight, white and male. Um, but the vast majority of the NHS workforce is anything but straight, white and male. And that was quite powerful when I heard it. Um, and I sat there and I thought to myself, well, actually, do I want to be on this course? Because if at some point in the future, and by the way, talking about this, given what I said about how people introduce themselves before, it does make me feel a little bit sick. However, um, if I ever want to do that in the future, I'm just going to make the problem worse. And, and I suppose one of my personal learning goals from that perspective was around well, firstly, it was it was about being more empathetic um, to people from different backgrounds when I am a straight white male. Um, but secondly, it was, do I actually want to make that problem worse? Um, so, so in essence, like the last 12 months, I've spent a hell of a lot of time looking at that. Um, and, you know, I think at the moment I, I don't know whether i want to do that right now in the future and actually it's not what's important to me radiotherapy and our patients is, is what's important to me but you know I, you know as a straight white male what i need to do right now is to carry on reading books like why i'm no longer talking to people about race um listening to people's story that have been affected by discrimination because I will never be empathetic to the challenges of people for, like as, as much as I can. I just need to maintain as much empathy as I can. Um, and I think we all have a responsibility to do that when we come from backgrounds which can be seen to be more more privileged, if that's the right word. Um, and, you know, and actually, you know, kind of EDI, equality, diversity, inclusion, needs to be at the forefront of our thinking for every single decision that we make on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, when I did the programme at the Leadership Academy six years ago, diversity was one of the golden threads. And, and, and back then, I knew what we should do and I knew what we certainly shouldn't do. But like when you do your essential training on EDI every year, you put it in a box and compartmentalise it into the side of your brain. What I'm talking about now is making sure that you know, whether it's a clinical decision, an operational decision, a financial decision, are you thinking about inclusion when you're making that decision? And the best example I can give was we, we started our Linat replacement program about a year ago when we started off replacing the machines in Oldham. And we were really tight in terms of treatment capacity when I first arrived at radiotherapy. And a few people suggested that instead of replacing one machine at a time in Oldham over the period of the year, why don't you just close Oldham down and redeploy those staff, increase your capacity, and it's great. Now that sounds like a no-brainer as an operational manager. And actually, um, using my coping mechanism for difficult decisions, I was able to say, well, actually, is there a more fundamental need than having access to radiotherapy? No, there's not. But then I started listening to other people and began to learn that kind of the northeast of Greater Manchester and Oldham in particular is the probably the most deprived area in Greater Manchester. And if people were faced 
with an hour's journey to Withington every single day for, you know, three, four, five, six weeks, they'd probably choose not to have radiotherapy. And and I suppose when making a decision about what to do with Alden, I had to keep that in mind and say, listen, um, it's going to make life hard, but I think it's really important to keep one machine running at Oldham at all times. And I challenged the team on that and they delivered and we've got two great new machines and now the people of Oldham have got access to machines capable of doing Sabre this and Sabre that. I think you, you, you've touched on some really, really important ways just to view health inequalities. Deprivation is something that's always looked over. People think, oh, well, if you've got a centre, you know, everyone will come to it. Some people won't. And actually, that is an ex exact like, prime example of an area which has the most deprivation. And you took one resource away where probably a lot of the people there would benefit from having radiotherapy at some point in their life if it's one in two gets cancer. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I think going back to what Joe mentioned about uh, women in, in healthcare and management positions, there's a really good book I'm reading called Invisible Women uh, by Caroline Crado Perez, I think it is. Um, but that, that's another good one for you to read as well, John, if you haven't already. Yeah. I mean, oh gosh, do I say this or not? Is it really, I mean, I've, this is a safe space, right? I mean, certainly is with, with, with us three, I'm sure. Whether it is once it gets out there, I'm not too sure. But but yeah, like I think it's it's also more than just about increasing representation at that level. And, and, you know, I've not said that when I've just witted on about my own personal development over the last year. We do. You know, it can't be a case that actually straight white males can do those jobs. No, we have to have better representation at those levels. That's 100% the case. But I think it also goes further than that. You know, if we go back to the beginning of the answer and we talked about why we've got a gender pay gap or, or why institutionally we've got ways of working which are built around straight white male individuals. When when people from different backgrounds get into those positions, they need to be empowered to be the diversity that they represent, right? And and you know you'll find examples of it. You'll you'll find examples sometimes of female leaders at that level that perhaps try to conform to the traditional alpha male trial type approach with their leadership. So everybody around them needs to empower them to be you know, the leader that comes from, comes from there, like, and that's the next step, really. So, John, I'm going to ask one last question, and then we're going to have to wrap it up because we're getting to our end of podcast timeframe. But um, we recently were at the Oncology Professional Care Conference, and we were doing a talk specifically on workforce and transforming the oncology workforce. And Richard Simcock from Macmillan asked the audience, you know, what needs to change within the NHS to help improve workforce morale, workforce um, attrition? And the answers given was very much around flexibility. So, John, with the ever-changing demands of radiotherapy services... Do we need to be more flexible? Do we need to start working weekends? Do we need to start working through the night? Do we need to give flexibility for people to work, but also serve the patient community? That is a hot potato of a question, isn't it? What, what's John going to say here? Is he going to say that tumours tumors don't get a weekend off? Or is he going to look after the staff? Where does he go with this one? But you can see... Yeah, yeah. But 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 actually 
actually, you even saying that, like, is it looking after the staff giving them weekends? Because I, I know some friends who might prefer to work Saturdays and Sundays, but have carer responsibilities Monday to Wednesday. Exactly. And that's kind of what I was going to say next is, well, well, actually, you know, why don't we just start with a blank canvas and say, it's 2023, now one in two people are getting cancer. How do we deliver radiotherapy? And actually, if, if, so caveat, the Christie isn't becoming a seven day service in the next fortnight or anything crazy like that. Oh, it, a seven day service sounds horrific if, you, if I went downstairs and said to everybody, you know, in two weeks we're starting a seven day service. But a blank canvas could offer flexibility that, you know, caters to the different needs of the team. Like, um, I mean, I've, I, I can't comment because obviously I'm not a therapeutic radiographer and I've never spent an eight hour shift or, or a 10 hour shift um, treating patients in what's a very physical job. But, you know, speaking to Peter at Leeds the other week, you know, they all work long working days don't leave which affords them an extra day off it fits with the demand model that they're getting up there and it gives more flexibility and, and it, so we perhaps i think the message is we need to think outside the box another cliche free speech bubbles but but yeah what, what i think sometimes just generally in the nhs we are too afraid of kind of pulling up a blank piece of paper and say right how would we do it with all these challenges and i think having the scope to do seven days also gives you more flexibility. And, and you know, like protons, um, I talked about Hazel and, and Ed and, and Tom earlier on. One one of the great things that they did with protons is is start from a blank canvas. They didn't do it the same way as radiotherapy and just, you know, delivered a different type of radiation. They started with a blank canvas. And, and right now there is so much that the radiotherapy service can learn from PBT. You know, vice versa as well, really. But But there's a lot from the way that they've set themselves up here. John, what top tips would you give to anyone listening? Um it's about being yourself, right? That that that's there's a bit of a theme there, like whether it is people that are moving into into leadership positions like we said a minute ago where they're traditionally underrepresented, be yourself. It's um it that's that's exactly what it is when you're making difficult decisions, you know. And it comes down to your values and, and everybody talks about values these days. And when you talk about something like values so much, they become a woolly thing that don't really mean anything. But they don't really mean anything until you until you bring them into your leadership practice. So think about what your values are and, and, and use them when you're making decisions or when you're interacting with somebody. Um, they are certainly my guiding light and, 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 you know, I get a lot of strength from them, you know, when when I have to do the hard stuff, which is hold people to account, or whether I have to make difficult decisions, it, it all comes back down to, to, to those values and, and they change all the time. So just keeping on reflecting on what those values are and what they might be and, and how they do need to change and how they do need to evolve is, yes, it's just about being yourself. Perfect, thank you so much. I think Jay and I have been messaging each other with lots of different questions we wanted to ask, but we're coming towards the end of the episode. But thank you for being so open and honest with us. I think in, in leadership, um, it's quite hard to be, as you said, show that you're being authentic, but you've done exactly that. And it's, it's been a really, really insightful and great chat. Thank you for coming on. And, you know, there is something really like what you just said about openness, honesty and authenticity. Like they are such important values. Like 
as much as I'm a physicist, I have a similar HCPC code of conduct from you as you guys. And actually, you don't have to be registered to do this. But but right in kind of in the in the thread of that kind of registration is this ability to have professional conversations and robust clinical discussions and things like that. And you know openness honesty and authenticity a key to building the trust to be able to 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 have those conversations have a psychologically safe space where we can challenge each other and 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 so so yeah that's really important thank you um, and thank you for everyone for listening to rad chat so your host today have been naman joker anderson and joe mcnamara if you're utilizing this podcast for cpd purposes consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature we've discussed to receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked to the podcast. So our next guest to feature will be Dr. Anisha Patel, who will be discussing her career as a GP, her media career, writing a book, her experience of cancer, and her amazing advocacy work. So thank you for listening and take care.